Hello, welcome. So glad you could join me. Before we get started, I want to give a, actually a quick shout out to some of the people who have uh, been supporting the podcast, who've been sharing it, um, as well as to one of our reviewers, Zaki Maki. Thank you for the review on iTunes. Uh, much appreciated. Um, if you are uh, listening to the sound of my voice, please do uh, leave a review and rating for Head On History on iTunes. We do appreciate it. And I should also mention that we are now officially on Stitcher Radio. So welcome if you're coming from the Android world. I'm assuming that's the people who use Stitcher Radio or for Android. I, I really shouldn't assume because I don't know jack shit about technology or, or who uses what. I just use the stupid podcast app to listen to the beautiful sounds of my own voice. Anyways, um, if you're interested in following me vis-a-vis social media, check me out on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I and use the hashtag HeadOnHistory. All right, now that we've got that out of the way, let's get started. So this week, I want to talk to you about two kind of separate things that are going on. Last week, we discussed the Abbasid Caliphate, or the kind of the high period of the Abbasid Caliphate in particular, and how it formalized much of Islam, producing orthodoxy, Sharia, the formalization of the Sunni and Shia theological underpinnings. So basically, last episode was about how Islam, as we've come to know it today, really took shape. This episode, I want to talk about what happens afterwards. What happens when the Abbasid Caliphate falls apart, and also, what are the effects of the Crusades? And these are two very important developments in the Islamic world. And so we're going to talk about the Turco-Persian world, we're going to talk about the rise of the Sultanate, but more importantly, we're going to talk about the concept of Jihad. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not going to give you a very detailed history of the Crusades. We're going to do that in future seasons, where we're going to dedicate several episodes to the history of the Crusades. Um, We're also going to dedicate next season to discussing about things like Jihad, But for now, I want to talk specifically about how these historical moments shaped Islam. So we need to start with how the Crusades began. Uh, The Byzantine Emperor Alexius, facing serious pressure from the Muslim forces in Anatolia, sends for help in Western Europe. And so Pope Urban II in 1095 calls for the first crusade in Jerusalem. And he argues that there is an obligation amongst Christians to go forth and rescue Jerusalem out of the hands of the Muslims. Now, if you remember, Jerusalem has been in Muslim hands for several hundred years at this point in time. After uh, uh, Khalif Omar, they had conquered Jerusalem and most of what was then Roman Palestine, and it was under Muslim control. Now, the importance of Jerusalem has waxed and waned throughout history, but the one key component is that Muslims, Jews, and Christians tended to live side by side with one another without much complication. There were moments of conflict and strife and tension, sometimes even within sects. For example, uh, Western Christians, or what are known as Latin Christians versus Orthodox Eastern Christians, often clashed at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But there is an exception to this kind of overall tolerance, and that is um, coming under the Fatimid Caliphate. There was a particular caliph that ended up doing something kind of crazy. In 1009, Al-Hakim, the caliph, burned down and destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, this was a big deal. Um, For Christians, it was one of the holiest sites 
of, of their religion. And up until this point, no one wants to point out the fact that Muslims have been ruling Jerusalem for, for centuries and no one's ever destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In fact, they've made sure to protect it. But this one case, Al-Hakim, and Al-Hakim is considered by most historians to kind of be a madman. He had a lot of weird tendencies. He did weird shit. So Al-Hakim destroys the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and a few, you know, after he dies, later Khalifs rebuild it. But Despite the rebuilding, despite the long history, that particular moment of violence, of destruction, is something that resonated with Western Christianity in particular. There was this idea that the Holy Land captured and was oppressed by these infidels, these Muslim infidels. And so when Emperor Alexius, the Byzantine emperor, asked for help, this was a perfect opportunity for Pope Urban. So in 1095, he put out the call for the Crusades. There was also another motive. In addition to, to using Alexius's call in order to set off the Crusades, there was this idea that by engaging in holy war, war in the Holy Lands would produce God's peace in Europe. Up until this point, Europe is disunited. They were constantly fighting with one another. There was feudal strife within principalities. But now they could direct all that strife to the Holy Land and therefore produce some semblance of cohesion. This is one of the unintended consequences of the Crusades, as later on, it's what really sets the stage for modern Europe to emerge. Now, that doesn't mean the Crusades happen and then all of a sudden all the Europeans get along, not at all, but it does set the stage for this idea that you can project a violence elsewhere in order to uh, alleviate or ameliorate the tensions from within. So in 1095, there is this call that's been sent out. Pope Urban's like, we must liberate the Holy Land. And you have historians and various people write down what the sentiment was at that time. We have Baldrick of Bouril who writes, I address fathers and sons and brothers and nephews. If an outsider were to strike any of your kind down, would you not avenge your blood relative? How much more ought you to avenge your god, your father, your brother, whom you see reproached, banished from his estates, crucified, whom you hear calling desolate and begging for aid? So this idea that the, the Holy Land needed to be liberated. And in 1099, they finally attack Jerusalem, which is what's known as the First Crusade or the People's Crusade. The younger sons of Europe, the, the second sons, people looking for freedom, people looking for uh, the freedom to buy new land, to escape the oppression of their fathers uh, and their older brothers, to, to, to make their glory and fortune make their way out to Jerusalem, and it is bloody. The Muslims were caught completely unaware. They weren't looking, they hadn't considered Europe to be even a threat to them. The Muslim empire was was dealing with internal strife. There was tensions within the, the caliphate. They couldn't possibly conceive of these backward barbarians from Europe really posing a threat, but they did. In 1099, they take Jerusalem by storm, and they slaughter the city wholesale. I'm saying not just killing Muslims, but they killed Jews, they killed Christians. Along the way, they even stopped in Germany, in Worms, Germany, and they killed a Jewish village just because they wanted vengeance for the crucifixion of Christ. So there was this this bloodlust that really took over um, the people, and we have evidence of it too. Like Raymond of Aguil, he writes uh, Historia Francorum, 
Qui Kiporont Jerusalem, which is the history of the capture of Jerusalem. Raymond writes, now that our men had possession of the walls and towers, wonderful sights were to be seen. Some of our men cut off the heads of their enemies. Others shot them with arrows so that they fell from the towers. Others tortured them longer by casting them into flames. Piles of heads, hands, and feet were to be seen in the streets of the city. It was necessary to pick one's way over the bodies of men and horses. Raymond is one of the contemporary accounts of the Crusades, so he actually lived through it, and he writes down his experience. So it's it's interesting, the Crusades are kind of this weird moment. A lot of people look back at the Crusades, and, and there's a sort of attempt to romanticize them as chivalrous, as this kind of these heroic figures, and part of this is partly thanks to the kind of propaganda of history, of European history that emerges afterwards, but the reality is that most of these Crusaders would be what we would consider to the equivalent of ISIS today, these kind of religious fanatics that appear on the stream, um, on the historical scene and see violence as sacred. Um, and part of the reason is because the Catholic Church did something really clever at this time period. So there's this concept called indulgences in which you would pay the Catholic Church um, and when you pay them, you would have time taken off of purgatory. And you could do this for like your great aunt. Your great aunt passed away. You didn't want her to suffer in purgatory. So you're going to pay some indulgences to the church and the church would forgive her sins. And therefore she can go straight to heaven. Uh, there is kind of a famous and kind of apocryphal every time a coin in my chest clings a soul from purgatory springs this kind of famous salesman line it's a bit apocryphal we don't know if they actually said that but it was a tactic of of the catholic church now indulgences could only be afforded by the really rich and so the rich were able to pay the catholic church and get these indulgences and basically get scot-free out of purgatory and go straight to heaven but during the crusades pope urban started to claim that if you couldn't afford an indulgence you could go to the holy land and kill a saracen and that too would be an indulgence and you can save your soul so there is a real religious fanaticism to this concept of holy war um, and it is the, the first time that we start to see this concept holy war emerge in christianity now there is a kind of older concept of good versus evil in christianity um, we see this very clearly in the book of revelations and it had developed in Christianity for a while, especially because of its connections to the Roman Empire. This idea that the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, was good and it was fight against the forces of the infidel and evil. So this is why they celebrated the sort of bloodshed. What today we should view in the same lens as kind of a medieval ISIS, this kind of horrible, horrific acts of violence, were celebrated. Raymond actually goes on to say, but these were small matters compared to what happened at the Temple of Solomon. This is the uh, Temple Mount where the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock was built first by uh, Khalif Omar and then by Abdul Malik. A place where religious services were ordinarily chanted, what happened there? If I tell the truth, it will exceed your powers of belief. So let it suffice to say this much at least, that in the temple and the porch of Solomon, men rode in blood up to their knees. Indeed, it was just a splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers since it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. And so this idea of, re of revenge and holy war and spilling of blood to purify Jerusalem took root amongst the Crusaders, and it's part of one of the ideologies behind the First Crusade and what made it so successful. And this was a huge shock to 
Islam and the Islamic world. While the Crusades didn't have a long-lasting impression, and there were many places in the Muslim world that didn't even know Jerusalem had fallen, there was an immediate response. But it's not all easy to say that, oh, it was Muslims versus Crusaders. There was a lot of intermingling. And in the end, when we look at this kind of history and we kind of appraise the effects, it ends up being that Islam affects the Crusaders more so than the Crusaders affect Islam. One of the other unintended consequences is that a lot of the Muslim practices, beliefs, theories, philosophies end up being taken back to Europe. Spices, food palettes are changed, clothing is changed, all the sudden there is a taste for silk there's a taste for fine clothing dessert this notion of dessert right we take for granted today is really a result of the crusaders experiencing dessert muslims were big believers in sweet things after meals and both in in uh Al-Andalus, mostly thanks to the contributions of the Berbers or black Muslims, you had this idea of desert as well as this concept in the Holy Land. So the Crusaders took that with them. It also brought with them the ideas that the uh, Muslims had preserved. We talked about the philosophical branches of Islam last week, especially in regards to the Ismaili branch, the Fatimids, Al-Qindi, um, as well as the rise of the Peripatetic school of thought, the kind of Aristotelian philosophy. All of that was preserved in the Muslim world. The Crusaders were once more experiencing that, and they took it with them. We even have accounts uh, uh, by certain figures. Usama ibn Munkith is a famous uh, Muslim Saracen chivalrous warrior and poet. And he would visit Jerusalem from time to time because he had some connections with the Franks. And he wrote, There are some Franks who have settled in our land and taken to living like Muslims. They are better than those who have just arrived from their homelands. But they are the exception. We came to the house of one old knight who came with the first expedition. He had a fine table brought out. When he saw that I was not eating, he said, Do not worry, eat what you like, for I do not eat Frankish food. I have Egyptian cooks and eat only what they serve. No pig's flesh ever came into my house. And so we even see in the Crusades that there were divisions between those that arrived early and adopted many Muslim practices versus those who arrived late. And Usama ibn Munkith were also talked about his experiences with the Crusaders. And he, for him, there, it was a bit of a shock. It's a cultural shock. For example, there was this instance where he saw a person have an abscess on their foot or their leg. And he went and he created a poultice for them, a medicine with herbs to place on it. But the Frankish doctor said, no, that's not how you do this. We need to rub salt in it, pull their hair out, and hit them with the Bible. Only with prayers can this person be healed. And Usama bin Munkith was kind of horrified at this kind of barbaric practice. And he's like, because they didn't let me put the poultice on, the poor person had to have his leg amputated. And so there was this culture clash with the Muslims who were experiencing European culture, which had for many years been dominated by by a, a lack of interest in the Roman world, with this was experiencing what can be called often inaccurately, I should say, the Dark Ages. Muslims were had advanced quite far in the fields of medicine and science and philosophy, and so there, this was a shock for them. Now, seeing this kind of barbaric behavior is one thing, but on the other hand, you the Franks were seeing these behaviors and then taking them back for them, and we see certain Muslim medicine practices make their way back into France. But there is an effect that this does have have on 
the Muslims, and that is that it reintroduces Jerusalem into the popular imagination. Up until this point, Jerusalem kind of waxed and waned. We saw that during the reign of uh, Abdul Khalif Abdul Malik, when Ibn Zubair had taken over Mecca, he started to emphasize Jerusalem. But after that, once he retook Mecca, Jerusalem kind of sometimes was popular, sometimes was considered sacred, and sometimes not. But now, with this moment in which you saw this kind of this this horde of crusaders come in and take Jerusalem, Muslims started to look back at Jerusalem and go, "What happened? How did these people conquer the city?" And we started to see the emergence of a particular form of writing, a genre, also called the Fidel al Quds, that is the praise of Jerusalem. So we have this guy named Abdul uh, Abul Muzaffir Abiwardi. It's a complicated name, I know. It is what it is. And he writes actually a very, he's an Iraqi poet that actually writes about the fall of Jerusalem. And he says, we have mingled blood with flowing tears. How can the eyes sleep between the lids at a time of disaster that would awaken any sleeper? Must the foreign feed on our ignominy while you trail behind on the train of a pleasant life? I see my people slow to rise the lance against the enemy. I see the faith resting on feeble pillars. Now, this is interesting because he sees the lack of a response from the Muslim world as an issue. He's talking about rising the lance, right? I see my people slow to raise the lance against the enemy. This kind of language of well, we've been invaded. We need to do something about it. Jerusalem is, is, is being held hostage. And there's this imagining of Jerusalem as a sort of a woman who's being cap- held captive against her will. And the Fidel al-Quds also started to talk about Jerusalem in sacred terms. That prayer in Jerusalem was worth 10,000 prayers anywhere else. And this becomes important because it sets the kind of cultural logic behind what eventually becomes the Muslim response. The Fidel al-Quds and these various poetries eventually start to fuse with the call for jihad. And there's this famous theologian, a guy named Ali ibn Tahir al-Sulami. And what he writes, Sulami writes that jihad had been forgotten, that jihad was not being practiced actively. Now, we all have heard of jihad, right? And it's often translated as holy war. But in reality, jihad actually means struggle. And it has a variety of different components to it. There is a physical jihad, which is done as a defensive act, and there's an internal jihad, which is the constant struggle against your own self. But the most important form of jihad was fighting against oppression, and this is really encapsulated in in the early formative periods of Islam during Muhammad's own experience. When Muhammad was living in Mecca and he was facing oppression, jihad meant speaking out against that oppression. A, a word of justice against an oppressor is what he would say. And so he would raise awareness. When he became a tribal leader in Medina, jihad became an act of territorial defense, of protecting the community physically against the violence of the Meccans. And so there is this component of fighting against your enemy, but this sort of defensive strategy had fallen out of favor. Muslims were not talking about jihad. And so there's this reimagining of jihad. No longer was it just about struggling. It was about literally defending the territories to ensure the cohesion of the Muslim world. And so Al-Sulami writes, prepare, 
God have mercy on you. To strive hard at the imposition of this jihad and the obligation to defend your religion and your brotherhood of Muslims with aid and support. Now this was an evolution, like I mentioned. The earlier concepts of jihad were much more about striving. Right, about creating a just society, about fighting against oppression. And in many ways, jihad had more in common with uh, social movements than it did any notion of holy war. The earliest concept of a jihad is really a social movement, a movement against oppression, a movement to create a just society. Now, sometimes that meant uh, speaking out against something. Sometimes it meant fighting, fighting for what was right. But now you had something different going on. You had this call for jihad, an obligation to defend religion and your blood brotherhood, says al-Sulami. And why is that important? Part of this is because of the historical circumstances. And this is how we see history shaping the religion. At this particular time period, there was an influx of professional Turkish armies. And so the caliphate in the Abbasid Caliphate and the various kind of local principalities, what we'll call sultanates, relied on a professional class of warriors known as the Mamluk. The Mamluk are Turkish slave soldiers. And they come from the... Uh, uh, Asian steps, and they're brought into the Muslim world, they convert to Islam, and they become a professional class of military men. And so you have this fusion of a professional military with the older concept of jihad, of striving. And so suddenly jihad is made into this kind of military expedition about liberating a city. This is a product of that history, both a response to the Crusades as well as the circumstances of having this new kind of Turkish military be part of the social classes of the Muslim world. And together they produced this new notion of jihad, a jihad that was a professional action of military institutions, the obligation of the political entities, sultans and kings and khalifs, in order to liberate a land, in order to fight against these invaders. So we're going to take a quick pause there on this jihad, as we're going to expand a little further on that, and how that really takes root. But let's take a break, because we've talked so much. Let's do a quick rapid-fire round. I know last week we didn't do one, so I want to make sure I do one this week. So here are some questions. Uh, what the heck? I thought jihad meant holy war. Was kingdom of heaven accurate? Um, what about crusading history? Well, I haven't heard any of this. So let's go over it. What the heck? I thought jihad meant holy war. Not at all. There is no actual notion of war being holy in Islam. In fact, the very word jihad doesn't mean war. The word for war is harb. And the war can be just, it can be unjust, but it can never be holy in Islam. We saw that the early conceptions of jihad were about uh, a social movement and try to creating a just society, either physically by fighting for it or through uh, social move through through a kind of awareness raising and prophetic activism. Um, later developments during the Crusades, we see it as a literal military ex uh, expedition, one that is sanctioned by God and one that is a religious obligation. But there is no concept of it being kind of holy. So I hope that that kind of explains things for you. Was Kingdom of Heaven accurate? No. Oh, it was not accurate. It's a good movie. Uh, my friend V and I, who you could probably hear on Currently Nerdy, we love that movie. We, we watch it a lot. A lot of our inside jokes come from, from Kingdom of Heaven. We talk about uh, Salah Adin. We talk about uh, Rashid Has Seen It, which is a weird... Uh, 
scene in the movie, you have to actually see the movie to know what I'm talking about. But the movie is not accurate. It's it's really a Hollywood depiction of it. There's this attempt to kind of play that both sides had good apples and bad apples, and that kind of misses the point. It also tries to make Balian into a hero, and Balian was actually really a minor figure who ended up going to Jerusalem. He asked permission to go to Jerusalem in order to rescue his wife and kids. Salahuddin allowed him to. It's like, yes, you can go into Jerusalem. Um, you can go ahead and, and, and save your kids. Once he was there, he's like, look, sorry, I got to break that contract. I'm going to stick around and help the people here. And yeah, he held out for three days, but there was no great victory for Bailey, and he was a minor figure. There's also this attempt to kind of make Salah uh into this sort of noble secular ruler and that's not true Salah Adin was deeply pious but he was also quite ruthless when he wanted to be there was good sides to, to Salah Adin, but he was a product of his times he you know he didn't win Jerusalem back by like being gentle no he waged war and this idea that he was like reluctant to take Jerusalem is false he really wanted to take Jerusalem but the depictions of the crusaders was pretty accurate the crusaders were quite bloodthirsty as well as the battle of Hatim, kind of the lead up to it and we're going to talk about the battle of Hatim in a little bit and then crusade history i've never really heard it from this point of view and that's because crusading history is really complicated and it's something that's not really taught well um you have it's kind of touched upon in history when you do european history and world history but it's really briefly discussed and it's not accurately discussed there's dozens of crusades that happen these are only the first two that we're talking about there's crusades that happen in uh Europe, the Abyssinian Crusade. There's crusades that end up not even making it to the Holy Land. The crusaders march through Europe, go to Byzantine, sack Constantinople, take all of its goods, and then leave. So it's a really complicated history. And of course, there's a deep Eurocentrism to the way we talk about history. Um, and you see that Eurocentrism in, in Kingdom of Heaven, right? It starts off as a story of Europe, when in reality it should be centered on the Holy Land itself. The only good thing that came out of Kingdom of Heaven is uh, Evergreen. She's definitely Bay, even if she is kind of one of those weird actresses. I think she's French, if I'm not mistaken. Her depictions of Sibylla were total shit. The whole idea of her just hooking up with Bailey and like, what a random, weird introduction of romance, but that's my cold cold bitter heart and <laughs> complaining about hollywood romances all right that's enough for uh this rapid fire round let's get back to the good stuff that is slaughter killing and jihad so the the sentiment of jihad that was written by sulami as well as these kind of poetic expressions of mourning for jerusalem are really picked up by someone named imadadine Zengi. Imaduddin Zengi is a Turkish sultan. Uh, he may have been Kurdish, we're not sure. But he uses jihad to really motivate his troops. It was about rallying the people to his side. And in 1144, using the kind of language of jihad, he takes Edessa, one of the kingdoms that the crusaders had established, the Frankish crusader kingdoms. And this was a major victory for the Muslims. And it was really what whets their appetite and says, wait a minute, we can do something about this. Imad Zengi never really achieves his 
goal of taking back Jerusalem, but he really does set the propaganda campaign for justifying the retaking of the city. By relying on this new definition of jihad that views it as a military expedition that is an obligation for Muslims that they have to fight, they have to join these military ranks and, 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 and fight off the invaders, using the language of the Faidal al-Quds, the praise of Jerusalem and the poetry of mourning, he rallies the people to him at a time when the Muslim world was divided between the various sultanates. Eventually, his, his kind of legacy falls to a man named Yusuf ibn Ayyub, who is more famously known as Salahuddin. And in 1187, Salahuddin finally achieves this end goal of retaking Jerusalem at what is known as the Battle of Hattin. On July 4th, 1187, the Crusaders, under the direction of their king, Guy de Luzion, march outside of their castle walls of Jerusalem and march against the Muslims who had been amassing from Syria to fight them off. And this was considered a huge tactical error. The crusaders wore chainmail, heavy leathers, lots of metal, big thick tabards that were made out of canvas, and they marched without really securing any water source. And what Salahuddin did is he set up his army between the crusaders and the only source of water that was available. And so what happened is that the Crusaders had to march right into the center of Salahuddin's army. And Salahuddin surrounded them. He put his, his army so close around them into a giant ring that it was reputed by Ibn al-Athir, the uh, historian, that not even a cat could pass through the lines. And when he surrounded them, he waged a kind of propaganda campaign, a psychological warfare. Salahuddin's men, the Muslims, began to chant and pray and started to march in a giant circle, whirling around the crusaders, constantly harassing them and harrying them and making them kind of cornered them. Here they are, these exhausted, heat-stroked men without any source of water, surrounded on all sides, and then they set fire to the dry grass and they blow the smoke into the eyes of the crusaders. The Battle of Hatim in 1187 was considered a massive rout. After days of exhaustion, the crusaders were defeated and defeated soundly. Shortly thereafter, Salahuddin retook the city of Jerusalem and it remained in Muslim hands ever since then. But here's the interesting thing now. So there was a lot of people who wanted to exact revenge. Now, 1187 is rough almost almost 100 years, about 80 years or so. It takes until maybe about 90 until the Muslims finally retake Jerusalem. And there were some Muslims that wanted to exact some form of revenge. But Salahuddin was not for that. Now, that's not to say that Salahuddin did nothing. Indeed, there are accounts of how um, many of the people were ransomed off. And this was a common tactic in war, that when you captured a city, you had every right to keep its people captive and hostage until they were ransomed in order to, you know, get their freedom. And the Salahuddin does this. He doesn't exact full, widespread, bloodthirsty destruction. And this is very different from what the Crusaders did. We heard from the Crusaders' own mouth, from Raymond, that the people were walking up to their knees in blood. 
So Hadin does not do that. He doesn't allow widespread bloodshed. Even though he does violently take the city, it's not a peaceful transfer of power, right? Let's be clear about this. This isn't, sometimes we try to romanticize these moments and he's like, oh, well, he was such a great guy. No, it wasn't a peaceful transfer of power. This was a military conquest. But for military conquest, it was quite stark. It was quite striking. And his actions at this particular moment are so inspiring for crusaders in particular that Salahuddin becomes one of the few Muslims that in crusading history receives all sorts of honors. They often go, he was a noble man, he was chivalrous just like we knights, even if he was an infidel. And so he becomes as legendary as Richard the Lionheart because of his actions. And what he did is rather than kill everyone in Jerusalem like the crusaders did, he instead restores the old churches, the mosques, he restores the Temple Mount, the, the Temple of Solomon, back to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and to the Dome of the Rock, and he washes everything down. Now, the Crusaders had used the Temple Mount as a stable. They had put, kept their horses there. What Salahuddin does is he washes Jerusalem with rose water. So rather than wash it in blood, he uses rose water. And this was very symbolic. It was an act of cleaning out the impure and purifying Jerusalem once more. In the same way that Muslims perform what's known as wudu, or ritual ablutions, where they wash themselves before prayer, he does the exact same thing. He washes away the impurities and he cleanses the city. Now, some of the people are ransomed off. Salahuddin and his brother himself intervene on behalf of many of the people, and they actually end up paying the ransom themselves in order to free a lot of the captives. And, uh, you know, they successfully keep Jerusalem uh, from then on in Muslim hands. Now, I'm not going to talk about the Crusades further than this. We'll have a whole season and a few episodes dedicated to Crusade the histories of the Crusades. But what's important is to know how the Crusades impacted Islam. While the Crusades had a bigger impact on Europe and the Crusaders themselves, we do see that as a result of the Crusades and the loss of Jerusalem, that there is this re-emergence of Jerusalem in popular imagination, as well as the reimagining of jihad as a, a professional military expedition that was an obligation for all the people. Now, it's easy to also think of this this kind of as Muslim versus uh, Christian, as crusader versus uh, jihadist, but that would be inaccurate. History is often more complicated than, than we realize, and the Crusades were no exception to this. To view this as Europe versus the Muslim world is incorrect, and it's kind of a simplistic narrative. Uh, an example of this, in 1137, Imad Zengi, the precursor to Salah Adin, he actually decided to invade homes, and he fought against Muin Adin, another Muslim. And Muin Adin, who was a Muslim ruler of homes, the sultan actually allied himself with the crusaders in Jerusalem. So you see that there was more complicated. It was sometimes Muslims would align themselves with the crusaders and sometimes crusaders would align themselves with the Muslims. The thing to take away from this is the shaping of jihad. This fusion of this kind of territorial defense with this professional Turkish class of uh, military soldiers with an older Islamic concept that endures for centuries to come. Now, while that's going on in the Holy Land, in the Levant, there are changes going on in the Abbasid world as well. By the 10th century, we had talked about the Abbasids as the kind of golden age, the Abbasids start to lose their power. 
they start to decline. And as a result, what happens is that a series of local dynasties start to emerge and exert their own authority. This is often known as the Iranian Intermezzo period. And so you have these people like the Buyids, who are Shias, that begin to control the territory around Baghdad. Um, you had the Samanids in Bukhara, Teherat, in modern-day uh, Uzbekistan and Afghanistan. You have the Safarids, the Taharids, all these different kind of groups that emerged. Now, all of them still paid allegiance to the Caliph, but the Caliph was transformed into a figurehead, into a symbolic individual, not an actual political entity. And this is important because it changes the way the caliphate is structured. Power is rested in local hands, in military commanders, not in the caliph anymore. To counter this influence, the caliph goes, I can't rely on any of you mofos. I can't trust none of y'all. And so what he does is he imports Turkish soldiers that we talked about earlier, the Mamluks. These slave soldiers become his personal bodyguards, his personal military. But slavery in Islam is different, and we've discussed this before. It's contractual. And so many of these slaves end up becoming really important viziers, and they become their own political authority in their own right. One of the kind of consequences of bringing in the kind of these Turkish soldiers and creating this professional class is one, it had an impact on the concept of jihad, right? This militarization of jihad, the professionalization, so so to speak of it. But in the end, it also resulted in a Turkish takeover. We see this first kind of with the Ghaznavids. The Ghaznavids are a Turkish dynasty. They were basically the, the generals, the Turkish generals of the Samanids who overthrew the Samanids and established their own dynasty. And the Ghaznavids were based in Afghanistan. And the Ghaznavids move over and kind of invade into India. Now, there's kind of a tension with the Ghaznavids. Indian history views the Ghaznavids as quite violent. And they were. They invaded a lot of Buddhist temples and monasteries and whatnot. But at the same time, they also preserved Buddhist monasteries and temples and suptas in, uh, in Afghanistan. So there's they have a kind of weird paradoxical relationship in the region. And we'll talk about the Ghaznavids at another time, but part of it, they really adopt the kind of Persian culture. Eventually, this leads to what's known as the Suljic Empire. In 1037, Tukril Beg establishes the Turkic, this Turkic Seljuk Empire. This Tur Seljuk Empire basically comes in from the Asian steppes and takes over the old territories of the Muslim world, all the way up to the Levant. And Tukruberg's Seljuk Empire still has the Abbasid Caliphate remain, but they become the military power. And they unify, for a period of about 100 years, Islam. So you had the Khalif, who was uh, the, still a figurehead, and then you had this other figure known as a Sultan, or sometimes an emir, who was the military commander that was the real political power. So this has an impact on Islam as a religion. Islam becomes rooted in the scholarly tradition that developed under the Abbasids. Remember, we talked how the unintended consequence of the Abbasids interfering in religion produced the ulama, these new scholars that dealt with things like Sharia and interpretation of the Hadith and the Quran. These scholarly tradition created a network of knowledge and so religion was localized. You'd have local chapters that dealt with things, scholars that would travel and, and discuss amongst one another and debate, as well as networks of Sufis, of mystics who created the Khankas, these kind of monasteries. 
that helped to promote Islam and convert people through missionary work and charity work. So while Islam was localized and preserved as a scholarly tradition, the Khalif was made into a side of abstract uh, figurehead by which you can you know, rally around real power rested with the sultans. And culturally, this became known as the Turco-Persian world. Because even though the, the people in charge of the sultans and the emirs were Turks, they adopted the Persian culture of the Abbasids and the Samanids and the various in Iranian intermezzo period. The Seljuks eventually collapse and the Muslim empire remains under the Abbasid Caliphate up until 1258. In 1258, this kind of great catastrophe happens. No one knows why, but the Mongol empire eventually invades. Now the reason is given for there's a variety of different reasons. One is that one of the Mongol uh, ambassadors was killed by a Persian emir or sultan, and this affront had to be addressed. Others argue that there was other forms of agitation. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that the Mongol horde invaded, and when they invaded, they took over everything. Town after town fell before them. And they were very much rooted. They used a lot of scare tactics. When they would destroy a town, they would create pyramids of heads in order to force people to give up their towns. Because they're like, if you don't want us to kill all of you, give up. And so in 1258, under Hulugu Khan and his Ilkhanid, they come before the walls of Baghdad and they tell the Khalif, Al Mustasim, they say, listen. Lower your walls or we will destroy the city. Now, Al-Mustasim was a weak ruler. He kind of vacillated and he's like, oh, I'm not so sure. And that pissed off the Mongols. So the Mongols marched onto the city and they took it over. In 1258, it was a mass slaughter. The golden city that was Baghdad, the cultural and intellectual heart of the Muslim world, was ripped apart. And historians talk about this kind of event, and they say that first, the Tigris and the Euphrates ran red with blood from all the people that were killed, but then it ran black with ink from all the books that were destroyed. Remember, Baghdad was the home of the Bayt al-Hikmah, the Bayt al-Hikmah was destroyed. There are books that we have referenced and that are referenced in other texts that we no longer have because the Mongols destroyed it. 1258, Baghdad was no more. But the Mongols, based off of their uh, tradition, their, their law code, couldn't kill another ruler. And so what they did with, with Mustasim is rather than kill him outright, they rolled him in a rug and they trampled him with horses so as to not technically spill his blood because that would be an affront to the gods. And that was the end. 1258 marks the end of the Abbasid Caliphate and in reality the end of the last real Caliphate of the Muslim world. After that there are no Caliphates. People may claim to be Khalifs from then on, but they're usually kind of symbolic claims or they're done for political reasons. No real Caliphate ever really emerges again. Now, this moment should have been the end of Islam. The heart of Islam was ripped out, Baghdad. But it survived because of that kind of Turco-Persian intervention, because of the unintended consequences of the Abbasid uh, inter kind of interference. By, f by creating this scholarly Islam, Islam that was rooted in a scholarly tradition of critically engaging with the hadiths, uh, with primary sources, with interpreting the Quran, by creating a guidance system, the Sharia, by engaging in debate and discourse and networks of communication and knowledge, 
Islam survived. Islam remained localized. It remained uh, protected. Now, the interesting thing is the end result is that the Mongols themselves eventually convert to Islam. And Islam survives in the three empires, the kind of Turkish empires that emerge afterwards. And so though Baghdad is destroyed within a short period of time, um, the Mongols themselves convert. And when it breaks apart, the remnants of the Ilkhanate eventually become uh, the, 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 Tamar, the Timurid dynasty in Samarkand and Afghanistan under Tamar Lang. They become the Ottomans in Anatolia. They become the Safavids in Iran. And they become the Mughals in India. But the end of the Abbasid Caliphate is in 1258. And that's where we're going to end it today. I know it's a bit of a long podcast, but hopefully it was enjoyable. We talked about the militarization and professionalization of jihad. We talked about the emergence of scholarly Islam and how there becomes this division of power where religious practices are dealt with at the local level by scholars, while you have this imagined khalif or an abstract khalif that people can rally around, while real military power rests in the sultanate, a kind of secular position. And this division of power becomes the kind of normative social structure of the dynasties to come and we're going to talk about them next week when we talk about the three great gunpowder empires the ottomans safavids and mughals and the impact that they had on islam so as usual i'm going to end this with a couple book recommendations for you the first book that I'm going to recommend for you is by a guy named Amin Ma- Malouf, and he writes The Crusades Through Arab Eyes. It's a really good book um, that tries that combines the kind of primary sources that we have from uh, the Arab world and explains Nur ad-Din, the rise of Salah ad-Din, um, the concepts of jihad, but it also goes further and talks about the Mongols as well because the Mongols have an impact on the Crusades, they eventually get stopped by the Mamluks who take over Egypt after Salah ad-Din. We're going to talk a little bit about that next week as we talk about, continue to talk a little bit about jihad and the impact that the Mongols have on, on the Muslim world and then the rise of the, the Turkish world. Um, while Amin's book is great, I really love Carol Hillenbrand's book, The Crusades, Islamic Perspectives. She wrote this in 2001, and it's really kind of the definitive book about talking about the Crusades, but from the Muslim point of view, about how the Crusades affected the Muslim world culturally and militarily. She's really the foremost expert in the Crusades. Uh, She's a brilliant, brilliant historian. I think she's at the University of Exeter, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, but she's brilliant. If you've ever seen a lot of documentaries on the Crusades or on, on Islam, she's usually interviewed in them. So Karen Hill, uh, Carol Hillenbrand's book, The Crusades, I also think uh, her other work is phenomenal. And I'm also going to give a re- recommendation of Omid Safi's book. Omid Safi is at Duke University. He's a uni- uh, professor of religious studies and Islamic studies. He's kind of the foremost expert of Islamic uh, intellectual Islam in the pre-modern world. And his book, The Politics of Knowledge in Pre-Modern Islam, Negotiating Ideas, Theology and Religious Inquiry. It's an amazing, amazing book on the 11th and 12th century. It really focuses on the Seljuk Empire and the emergence of the scholarly class and the intellectual developments um, and how political power in the Seljuk world was legitimized through their championing of orthodoxy, the orthodoxy that emerged really um, in, in the Abbasid time period. 
how they became champions of that. And it's by this time period also that we see Islam become the majority religion in this time period. So those are the three books that I'm going to recommend. They're all probably my favorite books. Omid Safi's book is, is probably top-notch. I've read it. It's one of the books that I turn to a lot in my own research, so I couldn't recommend it more than that. We're going to end this today. Hopefully you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, be sure to let me know vis-a-vis social media or leave a review. Other than that, thank you for tuning in and stay smart, beautiful history nerds. Mm-hmm.